Welcome to another, to another episode of Generational X. Please make sure to rate and review our podcast on the podcast app. I'm Henry Reichman. Today I'm with Griffin Roeder, Jack Newell, and Adam Cohn. We've got a lot to talk about in the world of politics. Biden's cabinet is beginning to take shape as the Biden-Harris presidential transition team is starting to work on getting the White House ready for January 20th. The Georgia runoffs, which will decide control of the Senate, will take place January 5th. And we'll, be, and we'll begin our coverage of those. First off, though, we'll talk about the fallout from the election, which was called a couple weeks ago. But you wouldn't know it based on Trump's legal team. Uh, Griffin, it's been a tumultuous past few weeks. Uh, tell us about the pretty futile efforts from the losing side that hasn't even conceded yet. Well, Trump hasn't conceded, although the GSA was trying to begin the transition process. But Trump called out the GSA. But I think really the writing's on the wall. Trump is eventually going to just accept that he lost and try to move out of office. He may not deliver a formal concession speech, but he most certainly will tra- like begin a sort of transition period, probably in December, early January, and he will give up power to Joe Biden on January 20th. Yeah, I mean, that's what we're all expecting. But uh, Jack, the legal team is still persisting, led by uh, the amazing Rudy Giuliani, right? So... I mean, how much of do you think this is just like self-denial, the idea that the idea that like MAGA people have that there's no way that Donald Trump could have lost and therefore the other side must have cheated and like they're trying to justify it somehow? Yeah, I think that's definitely a part of it. And I think in the back of their minds, they're trying desperately to throw as much um, doubt on the election, not only because Trump has lost and they want to kind of blame the deep state and blame a rigged election, but also because the more doubt that is cast on the election, the more possible it is that um, something during the actual confirmation uh, goes wrong and that the there's, you know, faithless electors, people switching sides. But I find that likelihood uh, extremely unlikely, but I'm sure that's in the back of their mind. Yeah, that was the idea, definitely to stir up controversy and make it so that a faithless elector wouldn't be completely outside the box when they switch, but that's not been the case. But um, Adam, this kind of blowback from the Trump administration was always going to happen, right? I mean, there's no evidence whatsoever that there was any wrongdoing in Biden's win, but it they persisted. Yeah, you knew from the signs of they were trying to plant the seeds by making up stories about, you know, ballots just being thrown out and ballots they found in a river or something. And so you knew they were planting the seeds that way in case Trump lost, they had an excuse ready to go that they could use. And what's what's interesting that I've seen is Trump and his team are actually going after a lot of uh, Republicans as well. Like in Georgia, they were going after Brian Kemp and the way he handled the election, which I thought was interesting because it shows that they're not only going after Democrats, they're going after everyone. Yeah, I mean, and it's like this big moment of reckoning, right, where like, you know, the MAGA Republicans start to separate from the regular establishment Republicans and the six or seven senators who have uh, acknowledged Biden's victory, you know, have pretty much been, I mean, you have moderates like Collins and Murkowski, who the Trump wing hates anyways, and you have someone like Pat Toomey, who's retiring. But um, Griffin, there's a real uh, civil divide inside the Republican Party coming out of this, right? Yeah, I feel like at this point in time, the Republican Party is kind of divided into like four wings, if you will. So you have the Trump wing, and with Trump out of office, um, his son, Donald Trump Jr., will probably sort of be the mantle for the Trump wing. Uh, I could also see like Tucker Carlson and Senator Josh Hawley 
they're also kind of in that branch. Then you got like the traditionalist branch, which is like Pence, Ted Cruz, um, sort of like the very socially conservative Republicans. And you've got the reformist branch, which is the third one, which I would say is like Haley and Dan Crenshaw, which are, I, I call them more like the uh, TPUSA Republicans. They're like yeah. big spokespeople for uh, TPUSA, and they're trying to somewhat steer the Republican Party into at least a bit more social moderation. Um, and then uh, the last wing is like the moderate, like the true moderate Republicans, like yeah. Charlie Baker and Susan Collins. Right, and it's very interesting. You see um, a lot of uh, you see a lot of uh, Trump people saying we're not going to vote for David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler in the Georgia runoffs because uh, we don't like how they haven't been calling the election completely rigged yet. I mean, Brad Roethlisberger, the Republican Secretary of State of Georgia, has had to publicly feud with Trump over counting every ballot. Uh, Jack, there's definitely these uh, divides won't heal for a while, right? Republican Party. Yeah, I, I think. For sure, they won't heal for a bit, and it's going to directly affect them in the Georgia runoffs because, um, as Adam mentioned earlier, uh, many of Trump's surrogates are attacking the um, leadership of the you know Republican Party in the state, including their Secretary of State, which obviously has put off some Georgian Republicans. And also, with this trying to hold on to the election, the most persuasive argument um, for Georgia voters to vote Republican is that if you elect these two Democratic senators and Joe Biden is president, then Democrats will have all three houses and they can get done whatever they want. But, you know, Trump has not made that a reality yet. And I'm sure in some voters' minds, you know, Trump is not necessarily lost yet, which is kind of bad for the party's strategy, given that it rests on fear mongering over what progressives will do with, uh, three houses of the government united right it's completely working against them and joe biden is definitely going to be our next president so it's it's crazy to see how you know this leftover hanging of the donald trump wing it might negatively impact the georgia runoffs and even in the future in four years 2024 presidential debates is going to be people saying you know i stuck with donald trump when they tried to steal the election like it's it's, it's going to be a big loyalty and litmus test for uh, for years to come but uh, Adam, you do you think that this will all fizzle out in the end? I mean, the GSA has allowed Biden to start transitioning, so this is all just going to by January twentieth. You know, it's going to be in the back of our minds. Of the Republican Party, it will eventually. People will start to realize after every after all the recounts are done, and there's legitimately nothing Trump can do to change what actually happens. I still think, of course, as Griffin was saying. One of the four branches, in particular the Trump branch, will not admit that he lost. But at some point, I think most of the Republicans will, and Trump will be forced to at least hand over the presidency, but will probably go down continually claiming that the election was a fraud. Yeah, I mean, or there's a second option where he hands down the presidency and announces a 2024 presidential run by the end of the year, which some, some reports have indicated he might very well do. Uh, Griffin, do you think Trump will use this strategy to kind of angle a political comeback in four years for him? I don't really know if that's 100% certain because Trump in 2024 is going to be like 78 years old, which, all right, Biden is pretty old and we all know that, but I don't really think he'll have the strength that he did in like 2016 to fuel a political comeback 
in 2024. I think the Republican Party will definitely be more fractured on where to go from 2020. Uh, it really 2022 is going to be a very pivotal, pivotal, ah, pivotal year. <laughs> and um, you'll I, I see Republicans making gains in the 2022 midterms, as it's very typical for the party opposite the president to make gains in the midterm elections. I mean, it happened in 2018, 2010, 1994. You get the whole picture. But yeah, if uh, it really depends on how like which Republicans are winning and where. So if you see the growth of like the moderates or the uh, the TPUSA Republicans or just traditionalists or Trumpists, it really depends heavily on 2022. And I think 2022 will give us a much clearer picture of what 2024 will look like. Right. And if 2022 features, I mean, there's some talk of uh, Trump's daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, running for that open seat in North Carolina. Donald, Donald Trump Jr. might move to Pennsylvania, some reports have said, and run for the open Senate seat there. So if the Republican Party tries to double down on the Trump brand in the next coming years, they're going to use this bitterness over this election loss. And Jack, do you think that Donald Trump would win a Republican primary four years from now? No, I don't. Uh, I think, as wow. Griffin said, first of all, he's going to be pretty old. And really, I mean, obviously, we can have debates over the cognizance of or of Joe Biden. But, I mean, he just has a stutter in reality. But anyway, you know, Trump is not the healthiest person in the world, I would say. And um, I think it's going to be tough to get through the grueling campaign. And I think I don't even know if he would have the support of a Republican Party that's becoming increasingly fractured. Adam, is there any chance at all, do you think the Republicans in a year say, you know, this was a completely bitter election loss, let's forget everything about Donald Trump, let's go back to the Paul Ryan, Mitt Romney days? Yeah, there's definitely definitely a chance of that. I mean, we saw Trump lost. He lost by a lot in the popular vote. He lost by a decent amount in the Electoral College. We've already seen a lot of Republicans attempt to shift away and really, it depends on, you know, what Trump does here. If Trump continues to alienate himself from almost everyone, him and his supporters, like there's little to no chance he he actually is able to successfully mount a 2024 campaign run if he continues this behavior of just removing himself from the views of the nor- of the party. Having said, yeah, but, having said all that, yeah. I think that the future for Trump is probably some kind of media personality on a conservative network, and that I think Republican candidates will still seek his endorsement and will still he will still be a player in party politics because you know his base is so committed and it's so unique to what we've seen in American politics before. So I think he'll still play a role potentially as some kind of party kingmaker and and one that you need his support to do well yet if the trump world view is that you can't lose an election uh if it's not rigged um and you know if donald trump if that kind of worldview is going to have an influence over future republican nominees uh griffin do you see it seems hard to see like the next republican loser in a general election just peacefully transferring power i mean is the age of graceful concessions kind of over with this precedent? Not necessarily. I mean, it really depends on the candidate and not the party itself, because there are several Republicans who lost elections this year and they were able to graciously concede. 
Trump was just one of those who didn't. And same applies to Democrats as well. So I don't really think this provides a, like a new precedent for losers of elections to not concede. I think it's really just Trump himself. Yeah, it should be interesting, but let's see who follows in the Trump brand. I mean, someone like Matt Gates and Ron DeSantis, two Florida Republicans, definitely grooming themselves to uh, kind of take over that mantle and fit that personality type. So that should be interesting to see. Um, but in the end, uh, despite Lindsey Graham's best efforts to throw out ballots in Georgia, um, what do you think of that, Jack? Do you think that uh, that's a... Did you hear about that? Yeah, I did. And that's, calling that's the... borderline. Yeah, a, it's pretty bad. Borderline a crime, right? Yeah, so... But it should be interesting to see how um, how that goes and how the Republican Senate, probably, uh, and the Republican contingent uh, reacts to a Biden presidency. So, yeah, it should be interesting. Um, let's talk about Biden's cabinet picks, because while all of this has been going on, Joe Biden's been setting up his administration, filling some key positions. Uh, the biggest one, without a doubt, has been his selection of Antony Blinken as Secretary of State, which is always one of the biggest cabinet positions. Um, for our listeners who don't know much about him, uh, Griffin, who is uh, Tony Blinken and what will he bring to the administration? So Tony Blinken served in the Obama administration in the State Department, and he was heavily involved in the coordination of Obama's foreign policy, in particular in the Middle East. And I'm not sure if this is the best pick because it almost brings fear that Biden's foreign policy, if he has Blinken as his secretary of state and he has other members from the Obama cabinet in like the like national security advisor, director of the CIA, that brings fears that uh, Biden could essentially continue the Obama foreign policy. And without a doubt, Obama's foreign policy was definitely his Achilles heel. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely an outside-of-the-box outside pick. Adam, are you surprised that this didn't go to, like, a Susan Rice or a more, you know, standard establishment name like that? Yeah, I have to say, I think this really fits with Biden's trend of just picking a lot of people from the Obama administration. And so you knew the secretary of state was going to have worked with under the Obama administration, no Biden. And I think, you know, all in all, it's not, it's not the worst pick in the world. Um, it signifies, it signals that Biden wants a return to stability, wants a return to respectable politicians who know what they're doing in positions in his cabinet. And I think Blinken shows this in particular, you know, he was deputy, deputy secretary of of state under Obama. And so I think this shows this, but you know, he could have probably, he could have gone with someone like Susan Rice, not the worst pick in the world. I, yeah. Jack, what do you think? That, so, yeah. The thing with Susan Rice, first of all, is there would have been a really tough confirmation battle of the Senate to do her uh, involvement in the Benghazi uh, fiasco. So I'm not sure if Biden wanted to spend his political capital trying to get someone like Susan Rice through. And I think, I mean, obviously, Susan Rice would fit this profile as well, but a lot of other high profile uh, contenders for secretary of state didn't. I think what Biden wanted most was people who could come into the cabinet and immediately get to work. He wanted people with a lot of experience who knew what they were doing and could immediately uh, hit the ground running. And I think Blinken uh, fills this criteria. Yeah, definitely. I, I don't mind it. At first, I was hoping for another name like uh, Samantha Power, Susan Rice, and even a 
Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut was floated, though that doesn't really fit the idea of getting straight to work since he's never had any experience in foreign policy. But um, Tony Blinken's not a bad pick. Um, what I'm interested in is like, you know, a lot of the Trump administration's goals on foreign policy, like revolved around kind of the idea that America shouldn't be a world leader on world issues, that we should become more enclosed and isolationist. First. Yeah, Blinken I mean, that's is the exact of opposite. So, I mean, Griffin, you see Blinken reversing this trend and dealing with Brexit and the Iran nuclear deal. I suppose, but I, uh, I feel Trump not, wasn't necessarily like the America first candidate because there's still American intervention in the Middle East heavily in Syria, um, in Iraq. I mean, we killed Soleimani and we almost went to war with Iran. So really, I think any candidate who like carries on a sort of war in the Middle East, that's definitely not going to be a viable solution for many Americans. I think many Americans just want, like, if possible, the wars to end and the bombs to stop dropping on other countries. And I think Yemen, especially with the current situation in Yemen with famine, with disease, with widespread poverty, widespread, widespread, like, outages of electricity, I think Biden and uh, Blinken will have to work to try to resolve the humanitarian crisis out there and i'm not sure if they'll necessarily retain the obama foreign policy they might move towards a bit more of a like human rights humanitarian foreign policy which is essentially a foreign policy of only really using the military if like the human rights of people in other nations are threatened Mm -hmm. whereas obama's foreign policy was more or less a continuation of bush's so yeah, I definitely That's agree with that. I take, but like uh, with Iran, especially John Kerry negotiating. We'll talk about John Kerry later, of course. But his negotiation of the Iran nuclear deal in 2015. Um, Jack, do you think that Iran's going to be pretty unwilling to work with us to get back in that deal? I mean, we promised them sanctions relief, and the Trump administration didn't give them that. Pretty much ending the deal, so it's going to be hard to get back in that. For right? sure, and it was probably made even harder today uh, after the assassination of the top. Uh, Iranian nuclear scientist, um, purportedly by Mossad or another Western intelligence agency. So I think that it's going to be tough to get back in the Iran nuclear deal, but uh, Biden will try his best. And that's the kind of foreign policy that Biden is going to try to uh, have his administration work on. And I do think he's going to intervene considerably in a lot of uh, issues around the world. And I would say that while Obama's foreign policy uh, was very strategic and uh, all of the countries really that we were involved in did have uh, pretty bad human rights abuses as well. So it, it'll be interesting to see yeah. what the ideology of the Biden administration will be. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of it was, I think Macron made a quote a couple of days ago saying um, kind of a, you know, off the cuff remark about, expressing doubt about working with America on big issues like climate change in the future because, you know, they could just elect one president and all that good work could be undone with like the Paris Climate Accord. So, I mean, uh, Adam, of course, of course, the Biden and Biden and Blinken will go and try to work with Europe on big issues like Brexit and climate change and human rights. But um, do you see uh, some distrust from Europe knowing that any work done is temporary? You just elect another Trump. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we were... We helped lead the 
Paris agreements. We helped lead the Iran nuclear deal. And while we're getting some of the people back who helped lead those, we're now we're still in the Trump campaign where he undid everything. He tried to isolate us from our NATO allies by complaining about the amount of money we were giving compared to them, removed troops from Germany, all of the above, you know, got closer to Russia, who NATO was formed to protect against. So I think that there's definitely going to be mistrust, especially among some of our closest European allies who we helped create these deals with, Iran and Paris. And now Trump has done the opposite. I think they'll definitely trust Biden and his team a lot more and there'll be a more positive relationship. But there will definitely be some mistrust knowing that you know, Biden's term could end in four years and someone could come in and undo everything. 100%. Yeah. And the last thing I would like to discuss about Blinken is, you know, he's not as progressive as many would like him to be, it seems. I mean, I've done some research and he's called Turkey, you know, an important NATO ally in response to the conflict with the Kurds. He's largely also shied away from criticizing Netanyahu, saying that the U.S. will always stand with Israel, even if we're the only country left in the world to do so. Uh, Griffin, do you get the sense that positions like these may split the Democratic Party on contentious foreign policy issues? You betcha it would, because (laughs) many progressives, and I stand to agree with many progressives on uh, the issue of Israel, and we we simply do not have to give Israel that much money, but we just keep giving them money, which Israel is a very prosperous nation. They even have nuclear weapons, and we're still giving them, I believe, an average of about $5 billion a year, which is unnecessary. Israel, I think, should be able to just protect themselves and uh, not rely on American taxpayer dollars. And Israel is perfectly capable of defending itself. And given the amount of human rights violations committed by the Israelis, now I'm not saying that the Palestinians are perfect either, because the Palestinians have fired rockets into Israel. But Israel has uh, not been the best defender of human rights. And I don't think it sh- it should not be controversial to siphon the funding for uh, Israel. And as with the Kurds, I mean, Turkey is definitely a bit of a wild card. Turkey is a member of NATO, but Turkey is really the country that's... I feel like, would you agree that Turkey is like the least allied with the U.S. nation of NATO? Yeah. Oh, like, definitely, that makes yeah. sense. And they're like yeah. on the fringes of NATO, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, they're on the fringes of NATO. So you got to tread cautiously with uh, Turkey. And if I'm not mistaken, Turkey has also been largely more supportive of Azerbaijan rather than Armenia yeah. in the conflict in the, yeah. the Caucasus region. So That's a problem. you got to tread very carefully. Definitely. It, it should be really interesting to see how, you know, whether Blinken will work to, toward a two-state solution, trying to revive the 2014 peace talks that and fizzled it, out. It'll be um, interesting to see really whether interesting he to continues the work that the Trump administration did in regards to the Israel uh, peace uh, agreements with multiple Arab nations. Right, I, right. With Bahrain I do think he will be a pretty ardent defender of uh, Israel. I do think he will take more of a globalist stance and try to intervene in conflicts where we have strategic and moral interests, especially to prevent the influence of Russia and China. And I do think he'll be involved in Brexit and make sure the Good Friday Agreement with Ireland is not uh, violated. Moving on. Yeah, definitely. And the hard border gets uh, 
doesn't happen. But uh, it should be interesting to see how that works. Uh, let's talk about uh, Biden's next big cabinet pick. It's not it's not a huge position, but um, it's definitely one that's going going to grow in importance. Uh, Adam, what are your thoughts on picking a pretty much a, a living legend in John Kerry to head up the climate? Envoy. I think it shows that Biden recognizes climate change is one of the most important, if not the most important issue in creating, you know, putting John Kerry, putting him on as making him part of his cabinet, putting him, putting him on the National Security Council. And I think John Kerry was a very good pick for the new special presidential envoy for climate. Um, you know, he was secretary of state under Obama. He's clearly done a lot in terms of climate he was a big part of the paris climate accords and it shows that biden is a polar opposite not a polar opposite but almost a polar opposite on trump when it comes to climate change and that he believes we need to attack it and he believes that we need to work together as a as a world both believe that you know america can't do it on our by by ourselves but we also need to be involved in a worldwide effort to stop climate change and to help the nation and i think john Kerry, as this pick shows that yeah griffin this is a pretty uh decent pick for an administration that wants to fight climate change right it seems to be someone who's committed to the cause right yeah i'd probably say so i mean he could have picked jay inslee but jay inslee's very popular governor of washington best to leave him be and definitely a safer pick than like bill mckibben bill mckibben would have been too progressive for or AOC, most of the right? Democratic, yeah, or AOC. So I think Kerry's a safe bet. I mean, Kerry was heavily involved with the Paris Climate Accords, so definitely a safe bet. Yeah, and I really like Kerry. He's he's he has really good work ethic. He, you know, as Secretary of State, he did so much work to, you know, work on climate change and get the Iran nuclear deal. And, you know, he's in the right position to keep working on these issues that he really cares about. So I think climate change, if there is a Republican Senate uh, by one or two votes, I think climate change issues, if they need to be uh, passed through the Senate, is one of the things that I think there will be common ground between Republicans and Democrats to work on and potentially get passed. Yeah, definitely, especially among the younger Republican senators who are more uh, who are more uh, they're more hearing about climate change issues. Yeah, because let's face it, like climate change has really been such a loser issue for the Republican Party. Like their inaction is like almost their their demise. Right. And there's even every young Republican I've talked to. and I know it's different in upstate New York than it is in Kentucky, but like most young Republicans also are like climate change is a big threat. And hopefully this is something that we can get bipartisan ground on. I think John Kerry is a good pick to not only get all of America on this side, but all of the world as he's uh, has a lot of European connections and he, uh, you know, really knows how to work with our allies on existential threats like and this. And it keeps so, up I'm Biden's trend of experience, stability and uh, Obama administration. Yeah, great pick. So uh, the last major pick uh, is, um, I don't know if it's 100% official, but it seems that though it is. Uh, Jack, what are your thoughts on uh, Biden's pick for the Treasury Secretary? I think Secretary it's Janet an amazing Yellen. pick and probably his best pick um, <laughs> in the cabinet so far. She's widely respected by almost every single um, person, no matter their ideology. Progressives respect her uh, for her work in implementing uh, reform on Wall Street after the 2008 or 2009 financial crisis. Um, she's incredibly experienced. She's been on the Fed for, I believe, eight years, and then she was chair for four years. Uh, during that time, she made sure that 
you know, while Republicans were crying about the monetary policy of the Fed potentially leading to hyperinflation, she realized the need to provide stimulus and make sure we get out of the depression before worrying about stuff like that. And her projections were the most correct out of anyone who was involved in that during the time, really. So I am incredibly happy with that. Pick. Yeah, and obviously this uh, economic situation we're in now isn't to the level of uh, what we faced in 2009. But um, Griffin, uh, she seems like she can get organized work done around uh, the COVID economic depression, right? Uh, she is very experienced, and I have no doubt that she'll try to implement Keynesianism. And I am, I'm no big fan of John Maynard Keynes, and I feel that many <laughs> of his ideas were flawed. Um, however, uh, I'll take Janet Yellen over Paul Krugman every, any day, because Paul Krugman is very funny, I find. Paul like, Krugman. Almost too funny. I love Paul yeah. Krugman. He won the Nobel Prize. Uh, yeah. Like, Paul Krugman's, like, actually on... Like, international trade, Paul Krugman is great. But then when you look at um, economic issues, especially, like, economic bubbles, because in 2002, this is a fun fact, Paul Krugman argued that to end the dot-com bubble, we create a bubble in the housing market. And then he had the audacity in 2008 to say, hey, I predicted the housing bubble. Well, I like him as a New York Times op-ed columnist. But, uh, maybe that's his place right now. But, um, yeah, Janet Yellen is a good pick. Um, and I think the big, be... the big thing with her is she's also at least now getting endorsements from progressives. Most of Biden's right. picks are not doing that. But, you know, Elizabeth Warren seems to be happy with the selection. And that's that just shows Biden needs a lot. Biden needs some people in his cabinet who are willing to work with progressives and progressives endorse and like. Yeah, there's no harm in Biden throwing a bone to them every once in a while. <laughs> Keep them happy. Uh, or at least not not angry, which is the desired uh, amount. But um, it should be interesting to see if Biden picks a progressive for attorney general. Uh, Doug Jones is someone who's been floated. Even Merrick Garland has been floated for attorney general, which would be mm-hmm. interesting to see a judge like that swoop into partisan politics. But I'm, I'm sure he'd do a good job. So that should be interesting to see how that happens. Um, but yeah, so Biden's cabinet uh, taking place. I'm forming we'll see all the confirmation hearings uh should be all good but with the republican senate likely uh who knows what could happen so let's talk about the republican senate now um right now the senate stands at 50 republicans and 48 democrats there are two seats uh still to be had uh, both of them in georgia democrats need to win both of them to uh take control of the senate and even with that it would be 50 50 with a tiebreaker so, uh, Griffin, uh, how do you rate Democrats' chances of taking both these Senate seats in Georgia? Not very likely, because there's a high tendency for Democratic turnout to be depressed in runoff elections, and that's been proven several times. Twelve years ago, there was a runoff in a Georgia Senate race, and the initial, the first round of voting, it was very close between the Republican and the Democrat. It was a very close difference between the two of them and the republic neither got a majority so then it went to a runoff and the republican senator i think Saxby it was Saxby, yeah yeah Saxby, um and chambliss won with like 58 or 59 percent of the vote in the runoff and then uh, a couple years back it was um one of the georgia statewide elections it wasn't governor it wasn't lieutenant governor 
it might have been Secretary of State, actually. It was, I think it was between Brad Raffensperger, who's the current Secretary of State, and the Democrat was John Barrow, who is a conservative Dem who previously served in Congress in like a blue dog Democrat area of eastern Georgia. But anyhow, that election also went to a runoff. I think it was like nail, it was. It was nail-bitingly close between the two of them, and neither had a majority. So it went to a runoff, and Raffensperger won. So, unfortunately for Democrats, I feel that the same fate will probably be met in January, when these two elections are held. And additionally, there are actually two U.S. House seats that are currently undecided. In um, One's up here in New York, yeah. not too far away, and then the other one's in Iowa. So... Iowa's second. They're both seats held by Democrats. One's an open and one is a Democrat running for re-election. So with Iowa, it's Iowa's second and it's southeastern Iowa. It includes like the University of Iowa and a bunch of rural farming counties for the most part. And that race is, I believe currently, like the initial count is less than 100 votes separate the Republican and the Democratic candidate which is very, very close. Very, it's very rare for an election, like a House election, to be decided by less than 100 votes. And it looks like the same thing is happening in New York's 22nd, where, um, which is where Utica and Binghamton are here in upstate New York, a little west of the 518, the, the greatest area code ever. And... Um, that one, Brindisi and Claudia Tenney, the Republican, are in a very it, tight race. Yeah. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, like, yeah, 12 votes. Now, the last time a U.S. House election was decided by less than 100 votes was in 1984. I read up on uh, this one. It was in Indiana. This is now a very Republican district, but back then it was swingy. And a Democrat beat a Republican by four votes, only four and um, that, was, that was 1984, and now we're having two elections from the looks of it being decided by less than 100 votes. I mean, there's even a potential for neither the member of Congress in Iowa or in uh, New York to be seated in January. They might have to have lengthy series of recounts. Uh, at the latest, like, I'd say might not even have, like, the full election decided until, like, February or March. Yeah. I mean, leave it to the Democrats to rig the presidential (laughs) race, but not the down-ballot races. Come on. Well, (laughs) the thing about the down-ballot races is I feel... I feel it makes perfect sense as to why the House went swung towards Republicans, but the presidency went to Biden. I feel a lot of people didn't want Trump as president, but... They reluctantly chose Biden, but they wanted Republicans in like the yeah. down ballot offices, like the Senate and the House, to sort of act right, as a right. check on Biden. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so back to the Georgia runoffs, uh, Adam. We we got two runoffs between John Ossoff and David Perdue, and then the other one is Raphael Warnock and Kelly Loeffler. Um, as Griffin was saying, uh, old people always vote, and young people kind of need turnout and energy to vote. So, do you see Republicans having the upper hand in these? I think they. I think that uh, John Ossoff loses to Purdue. Um, you saw in the original, Purdue had forty, forty nine point seven percent of the vote compared to 
Ostov's 47.9, which is a large lead. And the remaining 2.3, I think, percent of the vote went to a libertarian candidate who will probably go. If those are going to go. Yeah, I think Raphael Warnock, I have him winning against Kelly Loeffler. I think that's a much more winnable. I think Warnock is a better candidate than Ossoff. And I think we win. I think Democrats win that, which would make the House 40, 51 to 49 Republican, which would still be a gain, but not as substantial as anyone had been predicting. Yeah, it's been a while since we've uh, given ratings ratings to races, but how would you rate uh, these two runoffs? I'd Jack? probably rate the um, Ossoff, Purdue, uh, Lenar. And the uh, Warnock Loeffler toss up. Yeah, I definitely wonder. I feel like these aren't the best candidates Democrats I think could Warnock is a pretty good candidate. I mean, also, to be fair. Yeah. Warnock is a pretty good candidate. They found some things to attack on him, but he's not that. John Ossoff, uh, a lot of people view him as like a kind of an ambitious, spoiled rich kid. He's never really had a job. He's kind of like living off his parents' money, running for office every couple of years. You know, he lost most expensive house race of all time three years ago. So, Which is too um, bad because he's a, he's a good guy know. and he is good. At he's, he's a good guy, but, but yeah, it's not the best. You just think if uh, if if Stacey Abrams had run, you know, I we might not even be talking about a runoff because she would have collected 50, more than fifty percent of the vote. But John Barrow, I think John Barrow might have been maybe the safest bet because John Barrow was the top vote getter for Democrats in 2018 statewide in Georgia. He did better than Stacey Abrams did. Oh, wow. What did he go for? Secretary of state. He was the one who uh, went to the runoff, which he lost the runoff. Um, but he was, he did better than Stacey Abrams and he did better than like the other down ballot Democrats in Georgia, like Sarah Riggs and Nico. So if I'm correct, if, um, the 2020, I mean, sorry, the uh, the Purdue Ossoff race, that's a, just a regular Senate term. So the next election will be in six years after that. But with the Luffler Warnock race, uh, the winner of that will have to face re-election again in two years. So if Warnock wins, that might be a very short stay in the Senate for him. But if Luffler wins, Griffin, who do you see? Do you see Stacey Abrams maybe challenging Kelly Luffler in two years to win that Senate seat? Possibly, possibly. I feel Stacey Abrams sat out uh, running for Senate in 2020, but I feel that she's going to make some run for statewide office in 2022 or in the near future. I think governor or Senate, she's going to run for one of those two offices in 2022. Um, if if Warnock wins Senate, then it's going to be governor from the list of it. Um, or actually, there might be a third option, mayor of Atlanta, although she'd probably have to wait for the current mayor to... I don't see that happening, down. but yeah, that would be interesting. Yes, but, and um, yeah, yeah, that's, it really, she, maybe 2022, if, uh, left, if Kelly Leffler wins, then I'm not sure the Democrats would necessarily want to nominate their, like, a super strong candidate. Actually... You might be right, because 2022, I feel the Democrats are going to be on the defensive across multiple seats, especially like New Hampshire, where they have to defend um, Senator Hassan. But they, they'll try to play offense where they can. So yeah, yeah. I could see them nominating a strong candidate in Georgia, but they'll have to like really play. I think Democrats main focus in 2022 
playing defense in seats like New Hampshire and Arizona. Yeah. One last Senate question before we wrap up. Um, uh, Adam, uh, apparently I've, I've read that Biden wants to name Maine Senator Angus King to be the director of national intelligence. intelligence. Would it be a wise idea to fill that seat with Sarah Gideon, you think, considering she's lost a race in Maine before? Uh, I mean, Maine is, Maine is weird. And that the fact that yeah, she yeah. was in college. She's supposed to be complete so unpopular, yet she won by five points. I mean, I don't think it'll be the worst thing in the world to fill it, Sarah Gideon. She could have done a lot better, and she came close, but it wasn't that close. I don't know. I think it's fine. I think you could find a better candidate, but again, Maine is weird. It's just yeah, Susan definitely. Collins should not be winning an election there and yet she did by a substantial margin it looks like luckily we won't have that problem as of right now i think because i think uh biden is going to name uh or he might have already announced avril haynes as director of national intelligence oh really okay it was just i didn't hear that all right that's that's actually kind of disappointing i wanted to see sarah gideon be a senator but she kind of had her chance at that i think I think if Sarah Gideon were, were appointed to the Senate, she could have met the same fate as Martha Valley, so. Really? Yeah. You which... think she would have lost to a Republican in two years? Yeah, very possible. Oh, wow. I think it could have happened. And the other thing about Maine is if you remove Angus King and you look for a Democrat to appoint. Jared Golden. Democrat. No, that's not a very – because if you appoint Jared Golden, then you're potentially hemorrhaging a House seat. Oh, true. So, oh, true. Yeah. But there's but, really not as many like good Democrats to choose from in Maine. Like it's hard to think of like a strong Democrat in Maine besides like Sarah Gideon, who lost a Senate race, or Jared Golden, who is in a red House district. Yeah, maybe we'll just get Susan Rice to carpet bag to there. It'll be good. But um, yeah, so that's that's it for the Senate talk. I think uh, we've talked that we've talked about Biden's cabinet. We've talked about uh, Trump's dwindling legal efforts. So a lot happening in the political world, and we'll be back in the coming week or two to talk more about, I'm sure there will be new stuff on how Biden is preparing to transition into the office of the presidency. We'll have it all for you. Um, please listen to my interview with Lawrence Lessig, if you haven't already, uh, to our listeners. Um, please rate and review our podcast. That would be oh, really before fantastic. We go, yeah. Before we go, I have a question for the three of you. Sure. So if you could serve on one of the three branches of U.S. government, the judicial, the executive, or the legislative, which branch would you serve in? Could be any position in any position. one of those three judicial, branches. without a doubt. Being on the Supreme lifetime Court is so much better than any of these. Yeah, lifetime, you know, and it just seems like so much more, I can't say fun, but it just seems like a better job. Less, still scrutiny, but lifetime. I'd probably go executive uh, just because I think there's more of an opportunity to affect change. Senate Majority Leader. I want to be the Democratic Newt Gingrich. I mean, he, of course, wasn't in the Senate, but I feel like a powerful figure, like wow. in the, at the head of a branch of Congress, could yeah. really reform Democratic politics. Oh, all yeah. three of you chose different branches. We did. I'm gonna, I'm gonna side with Adam and go to the Supreme Court, and I would like to go up there and go to the basketball oh, court at the Supreme I, Court yeah, that, and uh, that puts it over the play top. at the highest court in the land. The that is the highest Supreme court in the land. Court. Okay. Play up there. Maybe you can. Yeah. All right. All right. So, yeah, thanks for coming on, guys. Um, we'll probably wrap up now. Please rate and